one sentence. And that is, what happens when one nation under God turns away from God? Tonight we start a new chapter in Israel's history. Joshua was the culmination of roughly 450 years of God's promises to God's process, to God's fulfillment of those promises. God told Abraham that he would give him a land. Successive generations came, and it wasn't until the time of Joshua that they were then brought into the land. And as we closed the book of Joshua, we also closed out that chapter of God's dealing with his people. He fulfilled the promise that he gave uh, all of those years earlier. Now, there's a new generation that's come on the scene. They're further removed from Egypt and the bondage that they had faced there. They're further removed from Moses, the lawgiver, who had laid down God's will and God's word so clearly. This generation, largely unaware of the bondage and the nomadic years of wandering in the wilderness and not knowing God's provision and His uh, blessing upon them, And they didn't have, or they do not have now, the leadership of a central head like a Joshua. But now it's largely individual, and the people are there in their inheritance. In fact, that's where we left them, is that every man went home to his own inheritance. Under Joshua, they experienced victory, blessing, wealth, as God just blessed them. He gave them the land, but under, er, under Joshua they conquered, but now they are called to continue that operation, and they are now to occupy the land that they've been given. If Joshua speaks of victory and success, sadly, the book of Judges speaks of failure through disobedience and rebellion. The key verse in the book of Joshua, it appears four times, And it really encapsulates the conditions spiritually of the people of God during this season of their existence. It's four times found, but it's the last verse of the book, so it'll go up on the screen. Joshua 21, verse 25, it says this. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the sentiment that expresses the spiritual condition of God's people at that time. Now, the book follows a very distinct pattern. And that pattern is this, is that seven times throughout these 21 chapters, we see the children of Israel going through what we'll call the sin cycle. And it looks something like this. They'll walk with God for a little while, experience His blessing, His providence, His fellowship, His favor. But then they'll succumb to sin. They'll compromise and get mixed up with people and with things that they shouldn't get mixed up in. Soon after succumbing to sin, they'll find themselves then enslaved by it. The shackles of sin will grab them and they'll find themselves enslaved to it, unable to escape. Under the grief of that slavery then will come the next step, and that is that they will call out to the Lord. They'll recognize their error, their problem, they'll repent They'll give themselves back to God. They'll turn to Him with fervor. And God will meet with them and raise up a judge who will then deliver them from the bondage to their enemies. And the people will then again walk with God and the cycle will begin all over again. We see that cycle seven times played out throughout the book of Judges as the people continually turn away from God and then experience the consequences of it. Now, the title of the book, Judges, gives us a picture in our mind. Immediately when I think of a judge, I think of Judge Judy or Judge Wapner, you know. Those guys with the, you know, the the black robe and the gavel. And that's not what this is talking about. The word judge in the Hebrew language, it's shefatim. And what it means is deliverer or savior. Literally, someone who God raises up to come in and execute God's deliverance, His judgment upon Israel's enemies And then administer God's ways then to the people. And so these judges are men that God raises up to deliver the people who've been put in this uh, condition. Now, what do we hope to get out of this study of the book of Judges? Why is it in the Bible? And what does God have for us as a congregation as we go through it together? A couple of things. First of all, 
It teaches us how sin works. And if we heed the message, it teaches us how to break the sin cycle. I don't know about you, but I know that I've fallen prey to that cycle of sin myself in my walk with the Lord. I'm walking with God, everything's fine. But then a small temptation, a small area of compromise is introduced into my life that I let happen. And then that compromise becomes enslavement. That enslavement becomes misery. That misery then translates into prayer. And God comes and says, oh, hey, it's good to hear from you. How's things going, you know? And then that prayer turns into God's deliverance. That deliverance turns back into fellowship with God. Only to, for some strange reason, not too long away, compromise to come again. And the cycle has a tendency to repeat itself, doesn't it? And the reason why this is here for us in Scripture is because we don't have to live that way as Christians. We don't have to live in a constant cycle of sin, repentance, fellowship, darkness, sin, bondage. We don't have to live that way. And so we learn how, if we heed the message, how to break that sin cycle in our own lives. The second thing that we get from this, and this is probably my favorite aspect of this study, this book, is that we get to see the judges. These judges are just ordinary people who are raised up by God to bring victory back to the nation. It's almost like they're a series of mini Joshua's. We get to see how God takes an ordinary person who struggles with their own sin cycle, but then raises them up into a place of leadership, a place of victory, and a place of conquering. And we get to see that, and not only do we get to see it in them, but then we get to see ourselves in it. And I love doing that, looking at the stories of these men like Gideon and Samson and Ehud and Barak and Deborah and and the rest, and to be able to see how God takes the ordinary and he can do extraordinary things with them. The third thing that we'll get out of this book is that we will see what happens when one nation under God turns away from its God. I don't think there's ever been a point in the history of the United States of America that more reflects the spiritual condition of the children of Israel in the days of the judges than the United States of America does in the days that we live in. If you were to take the moral temperature of our culture, our society today, And if you were to define exactly what is the moral compass of the United States of America, it would be that very definition that defines the book of Judges. Is that every man does that which is right in his own eyes. We've made that in this country somewhat of a human right. That you have the right to do whatever is right in your own eyes, unless what you're doing is casting shadows upon what someone else is doing. That's the only thing that you can't do. That's that's the only measurement of right and wrong. If you tell someone that they can't do something, then you're in error. But otherwise, in this society, you have the right to do whatever you want. Whatever you deem to be acceptable in your own eyes, that is uh, the rule of law, you know, uh, in in our world. And, and, And that's a sad place to be, that we can do and think however we deem acceptable. But here's the problem with that is that once you accept that as your standard and as your line, you have created a moral avalanche in the society. And it becomes impossible once you do that to insert a barrier somewhere along the way. Because once you tell someone that they can do what they want and it's acceptable, then you lose the right to tell someone else that what they're doing is unacceptable. And so you end up in a landslide of darkness spiritually, and it never ends in a good place. Now, if there was no God, then that's an acceptable rule of law. But if there is a God, then he retains the right to draw the lines of good and evil. And he also retains the right to judge when those lines are crossed. And that is where it becomes a fearful thing for our nation to be operating that way. Because God will not except a moral landslide without intervening and without judging. Thus, we learn what happens to a nation that's supposed to be under God that turns away from God. And then the fourth thing that we'll get out of this Bible study in Joshua is that we will see the patience, the mercy, the kindness, and the faithfulness of God. 
that time and time again, this rebellious and wayward people turns back to him and he continually receives them back to himself. And so we approach now the text. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, the warning was given by Moses that they were not to make any compromise with the people that were in the land. Seven times throughout Moses' last month, he told the people, do not make a covenant, a compromise with the people of the land. You're to utterly cast them out. Do not make agreements with them. And then he told them the things that would happen if they did. Now, in Joshua, they tasted what would happen if they disobeyed God. Just a taste of it when they disobeyed at Ai and then made the covenant with the Gibeonites. They they tasted just a little bit of what it would be like if they walked outside of God's will. But for the most part, they saw only what would happen if they obeyed. There was victory. There was prosperity. There was success. There was blessing. There was revival. There was abundance. We were there. We walked through it, and we saw God move on their behalf as they obeyed him. But now in the book of Judges, we're going to see the other side. They test the Lord. And they say, okay, what's going to happen if we choose to disobey? And that's what happens throughout the book of Judges. So, chapter 1. Chapter 1 sets the tone for the rest of the book. The entire chapter is dedicated to show us how and where the sin cycle started for them. The entire chapter is about where they compromised. You might want to write that word down if you're taking notes because that's really the topic of tonight's message is compromise. Compromise is defined as a settlement of differences by mutual concessions. That is that when there's a disagreement, when there's opposition, compromise is used, I'll give a little, you give a little, we both live, and then we have peace between us. Now, compromise in the Christian life for you and me isn't with Canaanites. It isn't with physical enemies, but it's with our three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we are called by God to not make covenants with those three enemies, but we're to utterly crucify them. We're to be dead to the world. Jesus has defeated Satan for us, and we're to crucify our flesh. There's to be no covenant at all. But that stance that we make against our enemies creates a conflict because our sinful nature inside of us still has a longing for sin. That's our flesh. And so our flesh, through the appetites of the world and the temptations of the devil, call us to the table of compromise. Come, let's make an agreement. You don't have to smoke crack But it's okay if you drink on the weekends. Let's compromise here a little bit. I mean, look how you feel. You have nothing to look forward to. Don't you need a vice, our flesh will say. And so the temptation to compromise is is always there. To make a concession, to give a little back, to stop this war that's going on inside of us. Now, sin never grabs a hold of the child of God all at once. You're never walking along with God, everything is good, and then all of a sudden one day and you're addicted to something. Or you're in an adulterous relationship. Or you're bound, you're chained to something that you can't It doesn't happen like that. Sin happens as a series of small concessions or compromises that ultimately grab a chokehold on our spiritual lives and then drag us down into that pit of bondage. And so compromise is where the danger is. Compromise is where it happens. It's like what God said to Cain. Remember, in the, in, right after Adam and Eve were created, they had the two sons, and Cain killed his brother Abel. And, you know, Cain was upset that God accepted Abel's sacrifice. Before he killed Abel, his brother, he had a conversation with God, and God said this to Cain. He said, Cain, sin crouches at the door. And its desire will be to master you. And that's what happens. Sin, it lurks in the shadows of our lives. And it seeks to devour us. But it can't pounce on us all at once. It's very crafty. It's deceptive. And so it calls us to the table of compromise. Now what we're going to see in chapter 1 is four areas of compromise where the children of Israel gave concessions to their enemies or disobeyed the will of God, the revealed will of God, 
But those four areas that they compromised in reflect the same compromises that we are tempted with and faced with day by day. And so we begin uh, here now in verse 1. And unfortunately, verses 1 and 2 are the high point of the entire book. Notice with me. It says, Now it came to pass, or after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. Now this is great. They're starting in a great place. They have a mission to fulfill. They've been sent by Joshua to go now and occupy the land that's been conquered. And they begin in the best way possible. They pray about it. Lord, who shall go up first to fight for us against the Canaanites? And a great thing happens that always happens when God's people pray. God answers. And he says, I want Judah to go up first. Now, why did God choose Judah to go up first? Many ideas and thoughts that people have, but I believe that the reason why is because eventually it will be from the tribe of Judah that the kings will come to the nation of Israel. God's going to choose the line of Judah to be the royal line, the regal line through which the people will be ruled. That's not something that came into God's mind at some point along the way. It was his intent from the beginning. When Jacob was dying and he blessed his 12 sons, he prophesied over each one of them. And this is what Jacob prophesied over Judah, his son. In Genesis 49, verse 8, it says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have grown up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? And then he says this in verse 10. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a reference to the Messiah or the Savior. Jesus is what it's ultimately speaking of. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And so before there was even enough descendants of Judah to make them a tribe, God already had it in his mind that it would be from Judah that the kings would come. He said, a ruler shall not Depart, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And thus God was anointing, appointing them that they would be the tribe of leadership. And thus God calls them now um, to that place as they're to go and they're to fight against the Canaanites. Now, uh, as we come to the end of verse 2, we come to the end of of their victory. um, And now it goes downhill from there. Notice in verse 3. It says, so Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. This is compromise number one. And here's what it is. Compromise number one is looking to the physical as the answer for the spiritual. Now, evidently, Judah looked at this task of being called to go first and to occupy the territories that were allotted to him, and he was overwhelmed by the prospect of what it would cost. Now, what he does makes sense in the physical. Simeon was part of the land that was allotted to Judah. It was engulfed by it. Simeon was also his blood brother, same mother. You know, they were close, Judah and Simeon. And it almost seems like, hey, he's just being shrewd. He's just being wise. The problem is, he's compromising. God didn't ask that a Judah and Simeon go up. God called a Judah to go up and to fight against the allotted territory. And so what Judah does when he's overwhelmed is that he immediately turns to the arm of the flesh to help him in doing something that's, that's a little bit more difficult than he would want to attack on his own. Now, here's the problem with this. The problem is this, and there's three problems. Number one is that it robbed God of the opportunity to show himself strong on their behalf. See, God is interested in having a relationship with his people. He wants to show himself strong on their behalf. 
He wants to do great things and he wants them to depend upon him to bring them the victory in their lives for the things that he calls them to do. That's what God wants. And that's what God wanted to do for Judah. We just read in the book of Joshua the things that God did against overwhelming odds. We read how the walls of Jericho miraculously fell down when they did nothing but simply walk around them. We saw the sun stand still in the sky because the armies of Israel needed more time to fight against their enemies. We saw God throw 100-pound hailstones upon the, the Canaanites that didn't hit the children of Israel so that more of the enemy died because of the hailstones than because of the swords of the armies of Israel. We saw God send hornets into the camp of the enemies and to drive them out. And in every way, God showed himself strong on behalf of the people of Israel. And now God wants to show himself strong on behalf of a new generation. And they're robbing God of the opportunity to do that. See, he purposely sent Judah in to do something that was too hard for them. He designed it. It was his will for the very reason of showing them his power. And by leaning upon the physical arm of getting Simeon to go into the battle with him, this is what they did. They calmed their inner fears, but they also sacrificed the help of God. They forfeited the spiritual help that God wanted to do it because their faith was quenched. That's problem number two with this compromise here, is that in a tribe where God is seeking to establish leadership, they're setting an example of fear and not faith. They're to be the tribe that will be the kings. And God is raising them up and he's giving them an opportunity to be an example to the nation of what God can do when they obey and they step in faith and do what he's called them to. But what they're doing is they're trusting in the arm of the flesh and that's going to be the example that the people are going to follow. They're leaning upon the flesh and that's going to be what the others do. And here's problem number three with this compromise. It worked, but it didn't work. Notice in the text, verse 4, and we're going to read now quite a while. Please stay focused. Verse 4, it says, Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. Now that's a lot. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, And fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used together scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now, that's kind of a gruesome tale. But it's what happened. Now, if you don't have thumbs and you don't have big toes, then that incapacitates you from doing battle. You can't hold a sword if you don't have a thumb. You can't hold yourself steady or run if you don't have toes. And and this man who boasts of having done this to 70 others before him now experiences it for himself and realizes amazingly that it's the hand of God requiting or repaying him for what he had done to others. Then in verse 8 it says, Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains, in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba. And they killed Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir, The name of Debir was formerly Kirjath-Sephir. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath-Sephir and takes it, to him will I give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, that's the arid desert lands where it's dry. She says, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. 
Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also, Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. That would be, you know, the Gaza Strip that we uh, hear about so often in the news today. And then in verse 19 is the culmination of this. It says, so the Lord was with Judah. And they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. So here the children of Judah, they form this alliance with the Simeonites. They hatch a plan and it seems to work. They kill 10,000 men at Bezek. They take out the king of Bezek, Adonai Bezek. They take the Gaza Strip. We have that vignette about Caleb that we'll come back to in a moment. But when we get to verse 19, it tells us that they come to a point where the Lord is with them, but that they were not able to take the inhabitants of the valley. They could dispossess the mountains, but they couldn't dispossess the valleys because in the valleys they had chariots of iron. And here's the problem that they came into in this. Is that they relied upon the physical means of having extra men through the might of Simeon, But what happened is that the might of their enemies exceeded then the combined strength of the two tribes. And at that point, when they came to the end of their own resources, they found themselves unable to conquer. Now, wait a minute. Didn't God promise them that none of their enemies would be able to stand before them? Didn't he say that nothing would be too hard and that they would simply go into the battle and God would ensure that they obtained the victory? But here it says that they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley. Were the inhabitants of the valley too strong for God? No. Are chariots of iron too tough of a thing for God to overcome and go through? No, God surely could have done it, but Judah couldn't do it. And here's what happens. Here's what happened to them is that when they would rely upon the arm of the flesh, God withdrew his hand, and he let them have their way. In Psalm 78, verse 41, the psalmist says, Yes, again and again they tempted God, and they limited the Holy One of Israel. See, when we lean upon our own means or our own strength or upon our way of getting things done, God withdraws his hand and he leaves us to, his, to our means. He wants to show himself strong on our behalf, but he won't compete with our intellect or our strength. And when a person of God relies upon the physical means of accomplishing a task, they are also then bound by the physical restrictions that come along with that. And what happens when the obstacles that we face are now greater than the strength of us plus the help that we've enlisted. Then we have a problem, and we find that we're only halfway where we're supposed to be, and the other half is undone or unaccounted for. How do we apply this to our lives? It happens to us when we find ourselves constantly looking for the human solution or the human element in the problems that we face. We go through difficult things. We come across obstacles that are too great for us. How do you handle it when you do? Are you quickly thinking about, well, who can I talk to? Who can I get to help me in this? Or what strategy is there? Or what book can I read? Or who's been down this road before that can give me some advice? It happens when we trust in our own intelligence, our own ability, or in our efforts to solve our problems. And it happens when we limit God in our minds and we put upon Him the same type of restrictions that we ourselves would have. And that's what happens. We lean upon the arm of the flesh. And here's here's what we need to know and to remember this. Is that if God tells you something, if he tells you to do something, if he puts something in your heart, or if he reveals something in his word that is clearly his will, then our response to that is that we're to simply do it. We're to obey. We're to walk in faith and to believe that what he said he's going to do, or what he's asking us to do, that he's going to supply the strength and the power to do. And God honors faith. He blesses faith. He longs to show himself strong on behalf of his people. 
And he'll do that for us. But when we you know, don't believe him, and we lean upon the flesh, we limit ourselves. What, why is this thing of Caleb brought up in this? This is a repeat. This exact section of scripture was given to us back in Joshua chapter 15. We already heard what Caleb had done and how he did. Why did God put this thing about Caleb in the middle of this chapter, the section that is going to increasingly point to their compromise? Here's why. Because not everyone compromised. And it's always true that even in a time when the people of God are are compromising, and when compromise is the banner that's over the church, there's always people that will say, no, I'm going to go all in for this. And God's going to be faithful, and he's going to show himself as strong on behalf of those people that are faithful to him. Who is Caleb? Caleb was a Gentile. He didn't have roots in Jacob or in Israel at all. We're told that he was a Kenizzite. He was a foreigner. But he joined himself to the people of God. He was allied with God. He was obedient to God. And God blessed his life. He had a fruitful land. He had a fruitful family. He had fruitful territory. He had so much abundance that he's able to give to his daughter two springs of water after giving her a whole section of land. God's going to be faithful to those who compromise. We don't have to live a life of compromise in the body of Christ. And if we don't, we'll reap the benefit of that. I believe that as Christians in these days, we have a distinct advantage. And that, that, that is this. God has all of these resources. The Bible says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That, that all things are his. And that nothing is too hard for him. And what we're seeing happen in these days is that we're seeing more and more of the people of God turning away from the ways of God. And here's what that does for the person who is staying faithful to God. Is that it frees up those resources for you. <laughs> you know, sometimes I feel like that. I, I look at my wife and I say, man, the Lord is so good to us and I can't figure out why. And, and, and then I'll joke around with her and I'll say, I think it's because all of the, you know, the older, you know, seasoned saints are dying off and God doesn't know what to do with those resources. And so we're, here we are, you know, we're kind of just, we're standing there, you know. But I think there is an element of truth to that, that if you remain faithful to God, He's going to show himself strong on your behalf. And he has the resources to do it. There's nothing too hard for God. And that's the call. The call is be faithful to God and he'll show himself strong towards you. The second area of compromise uh, that that we see um, here in in verse 21 now, uh, verse 20 and 21 is the indifferent. Um, It's verse 21. It says, but the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And then we see the same thing down in verse 27. Look at verse 27. And we'll come back to the others, don't worry. He says, However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bet-Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and the Canaanites. Uh, and then it says, For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. This compromise here is the compromise of indifference. And that is very simply, is when the people of God know what they're supposed to do, and they just look at the the task at hand, and they just say, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to. And that's what these guys do. It doesn't say that they couldn't do it. It doesn't say that they didn't have the resources or the strength. It just says that they didn't do it. They said, no, don't want to do it. Not going to do it. And here's why it says in verse 27. It says, because the Canaanites were determined to stay in the land. And that means this. It means that the sin was more determined to hold its ground than the people of God were determined to get rid of it. The strength of the sin exceeded the resolve of the people. Now listen to me, church. God wants His very best for our lives. When you look at the Scriptures and you see what God does with a life that's given to Him. I think of Abraham. The Bible tells us that Abraham was very... Well, he started with nothing. He started as a pagan idolater in Ur. But he walked with God. He was consecrated to God. And at the end of his life, the Bible tells us that he was very wealthy in silver and in gold and in much livestock. 
He had 318 armed servants in his company. He was the friend of God, the Bible tells us. And that he was close to God. He had that relationship. I mean, he had a blessed life. Look what God did with that man, Abraham. We look at Jacob. He went out from his family when he was being chased by Esau, and he laid his head on a rock. He had nothing but the clothes on his back, and he used a rock for his pillow that first night that he left. Twenty years later, after walking with God, he came back, and he had such a multitude of servants and flocks and herds that he had to separate himself into multiple companies as they made their way back into the land. And he even said himself, he said, I came out here with nothing, and look at how I'm going home. Look what the Lord has done in my life. Think of young David. He's just a young man. He, he, he's keeping the sheep. He's got nothing but a shepherd's staff. He's the youngest of seven brothers. I'm beginning to see what that's like <laughs> in my family as I watch hand-me-downs go from person to person to person to person. And, you know, it gets to a point where it's like, I have to wear this? You know, you know what's it like to be the youngest of seven? And that's who David was. He was nothing. He was overlooked even when the prophet came to his house. But God had a call on his life, and he was faithful to God. And God took David from following after the sheep, and he put him in the palace. He put a crown of gold upon his head, and he made him the gold standard by which every other king would be measured, and his life was elevated, exalted, and blessed. I look at Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, the wealthiest man that ever lived. And I see what God did for him. And then, and I look at the pages of Scripture and I ask the question and I say, God, did you just put those stories there so that you could say, hey, look what I did with them. You wish. And it doesn't compute. No, those things are on the pages of Scripture because it's a testimony of what God can do with any person from any place in any time from any background whose life is simply consecrated and given to him. That's what God wants to do for his people. He wants to show himself strong for us. So here's what we do when we make the compromise of indifference. Is that we come to a point and we we say, okay, well, I have gotten victory in my life over this, this, and this. I I, I no longer curse. I I no longer drink. I no longer watch those movies and, and those types of things. I don't do those things anymore. But this pot thing has given me a hard time. And, and so, I, because I don't like the way I feel, and, and, I, and I need to have something to look forward to because I hate my job, and, and I, you know, just, I'm not going to let go of it. I'm just not going to. This is part of who I am. It's the compromise of indifference. I'm just saying, I'm not going to do it. This is, this is bigger in me. This is a bigger part of my life than God is a part of my life. And so I'm just going to continue with this thing, and I'm not going to worry about, uh, about, about getting rid of it. And here's what happens. Here's what you're doing when you do that, is that what you're doing is that you are, first of all, denying God that he has the power to set you free from that and that he has something better for you. You're denying it through your deeds. You're saying, God, I I thank you for your salvation, but I don't believe that you can do greater for my life than what this vice or this sin is doing for my life, so I'm just going to allow it to keep going on in my behavior. And here's the second thing you're doing, and it's even worse, is that you're trading the glory of God in your life for the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's a bad deal. Because sin can never satisfy ultimately. Yes, the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. But after, it brings destruction, separation, and death. I don't want that. Do you? Compromise number three, we see it in verses 22 through 26. It's the compromise of excuses. Notice verse 22. It says, In the house of Joseph, and I love this story. It's one of my favorite little sections of Scripture in the whole Old Testament. You'll see why. It says, And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please, show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, 
but they let the man and all his family go. Now, pause right there, because here's what happens, is that they come to the edge of the city, they know they've got to take it, but they can't find a way inside. And so they see a man walking towards the city with whatever, and they say, ah, we got it. And they go to the man and they say, let's compromise, let's make a deal. Your life for the city. You get to live if you show us the way into the city. And so he says, sounds good to me. What's my other option? Die, you know, and you're going to get into the city anyways. So this is a great deal for the guy. And these guys think, ha, we did it. The ends justify the means. It's just one man. What is one man, what harm is one little thing going to do if we let it go, if it means that we're going to get to take the whole city in the process? Well, here's the problem. Notice what happens in verse 26. It says, and the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. Do you see what happened there? They let one man from the city of Luz live, and the man went and built another city of Luz. This is called the compromise of excuses. It's when we can look at what we're doing that's sinful, and we can see something in it that maybe is redeemable. Well, yeah, I know I'm, I know I'm not supposed to, well, I'm not using this stuff anymore. I'm just selling it because I, you know, I'm providing. And so this is just how I'm providing, but I'm not using it. Now, now wait a minute, you're compromising there. You're making an excuse. You, you're doing something that you know isn't right, and you're justifying it because of something that might come good out of it on the other side. Missionary dating is a, an example of an, a, a compromise of excuse. Well, I know I'm not supposed to be in that relationship, you know, but, but I'm, I'm going to win him to the Lord, you know, and, and so, so that's excuses. There's going to be good that's going to come from this compromise. Missionary drinking. Well, I know it was a problem in my past life, but I go there to witness. I go to, and hang out with those people, and I do those, I did, but it's just a little, and it's not a big deal. Here's what happens is that that little compromise that's no big deal is one day going to be a very, very big compromise and it's going to be as big of a problem as it was in your life on the day that you found yourself unable to attack it the first time. And you're going to end up right where you began. And that's what happens to these people. They compromise in this way and they, you know, they, they, uh, they blow it here. They, and, and here's what this shows. It shows that they wanted to go through the motions of driving out the people, but they didn't care about the corruption that came with the Canaanite ways because they let it grow and become just as corrupt as it had been before. And when a person excuses sin, that's exactly what they're doing. Then we come to compromise number four in verse 27. And this is compromise due to extraction. Verse uh, 27. It says, however, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, uh, or, um, we already read that, verse 28, and it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute. They taxed them, but they did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute, or they were taxed. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab, Akzib, Helba, Aphek, or Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. But they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. They taxed them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down into the valley. And here, in verse 34, it gets so bad that now the Canaanites are determining where the Israelites are going to live. They would rather relocate than deal with the problem at hand. And so they do. They, don't, they say, all right, fine, we'll leave the valley and we'll go live in the mountains. And then verse 35, and it says, And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Haris, in Aijalon, and in Shalabim, 
Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. And so here we have the compromise because of extraction. And here's what happens. Is that they got to a point in their experience in occupying and in dealing with the Canaanites. That they were able to make an agreement with them where they were strong enough that they could let the Canaanites live, but they could tax them. They could gain revenue. They could use it to their advantage that they were there. And they they were strong enough that they could do it in a way where they were uncorrupted by their relations with them. Here's the problem. Outside of the fact that God forbade them from doing that. Here's the second problem. Is that it assumes that because they're stronger than the enemy today, that they still will be tomorrow. And here's what happens then. Is that every day they let the enemy live they're becoming accustomed to what they're getting from that enemy. They're getting tax revenue. They're getting woodcut for the service of the temple. Or whatever it was that the Canaanites were doing for them in order to keep their lives, the Israelites were becoming accustomed to having that service or that money given to them. But what they weren't taking account for was the fact that every day that enemy was getting stronger and stronger. They were multiplying and growing. They were planning and plotting. And eventually, a day would come when Israel would go to collect the revenue. And the Canaanites would say, no. We're not going to give you any more revenue. Now you're going to give us revenue. And there's nothing you can do about it because now we're stronger than you are. And you say, well, that wouldn't, that wouldn't. It happened. It happened. And the same thing happens in the life of the child of God when they compromise due to extraction. They say, well, I'm strong enough. I've been walking with the Lord now long enough that I can control this sin issue. I don't have to put it to death or get rid of it. I can control it. And so I I know how much I can have, how much I can do, how much I can look at, how much I can flirt. And this is just a part of my life, but it's under control. It's under control, but two things are happening. Number one is that you're getting addicted to whatever revenue that sin is giving to you. If it's drink, you're accustomed to that relaxed state that you're getting from it at the end of a hard day. If it's drugs, your body's becoming addicted to that substance that's being put in in controlled increments, no matter what that drug is. If it's looking at things you shouldn't look at, if it's being with people you shouldn't be with, it's becoming more and more a part of your lifestyle. And at the same time, the grip of that, the strength of that controlled thing is growing. And there's going to come a day when you say, no, I've got this under control, and that sin is going to look right back in you and say, oh, no, you don't. I'm going to control you now. And you're going to do what I say. And you're going to find yourself in a place where you can do nothing about it. You're going to fall and be defeated. If you give sin a toehold in your life, because you say, well, it's only a toehold, no one can stand on that. That sin will eventually grab a foothold. And once it has a foothold, it isn't long before it's a stronghold. And so the warning is, don't compromise. Put it to death. Crucify it. Now, in closing... All of the problems that will come upon the children of Israel throughout the rest of the book of Judges have their root here in chapter 1. All the problems they will face for the next 300 to 400 years start right here. Never again for the rest of the book does it highlight where they compromised. What we see is that one by one, these people groups that they let live rise up to a point of strength where they bring Israel into bondage to their will. Because they didn't put it to death. They didn't crucify it. If only they had obeyed at the beginning, they would have saved themselves a lot of trouble. I believe there's truth in this. Maybe you're a new Christian, you're here tonight, and you've only been walking with the Lord for a little while. Let me give you some advice that if you heed it, you'll be happy. The decisions that you make early on in your Christian life, as you're just getting going in the Lord and setting your feet in the path 
and laying the foundation. The decisions that you make there are going to make or break the rest of the time that you walk with the Lord on this earth. If you make compromise a pattern in your life for whatever reason, whether it's leaning on the arm of the flesh, whether it's making excuses because of your past lifestyle and how long you've been doing a certain sin, whether it's extraction, well, I'm getting something from this and I've got it under control. Whatever reason there is behind the compromise that you make, if you do that early on, then that's going to be the pattern for your Christian life for a long, long time. And those things are going to come back and bite you. How you laid the foundation when you begin makes a big difference how you progress and how you grow. Romans chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, the Apostle Paul writes this truth. It actually begins in verse 6. It says that he will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Compromise doesn't pay. God blesses when we obey and we do the things that he says he's going to do or tells us to do. And we see him working in our lives. The Bible says that until the church is taken up, that we are the primary means of restraining evil in the world. And furthermore, we are supposed to be one nation under God in the United States of America. The condition of our nation is every man does that which is right in his own eyes. But if that's also the condition of the church, then what do we have left? If we're not salt and light now, then what does that mean in the days to come? Father, we just thank you so much for this clear warning that you give to us in this chapter. We believe, Lord, that you want your very best for our lives. That you're willing, Lord, to do exceeding and abundantly above all that we could ask or even think. We know, Lord, that our flesh is weak and that we're bombarded with temptations daily, things too strong for us. But we also know, Lord, that you promised that you will provide the strength and the power to do what it is that you've called us to do. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that you would give each one of us a fresh filling with your Holy Spirit. That you would enable us afresh to live in obedience to you. Lord, we know that apart from your Spirit and your help, we can do nothing. 